be a prayer with me. Lord Jesus, as we've uh, just considered your word for a moment and heard it read out, we recognize that there's crowds uh, who hear and who experience your ministry and yet don't realize that you're amongst them. And Father, I pray that that would not happen to us today. Lord, I ask that we would recognize that you are truly amongst us as you have promised to be. And Lord, that this is your word and so please bring us under your authority Help us to hear and to apply it into our lives by the Holy Spirit that we would be changed and transformed like this Canaanite woman who had great faith. Lord, give us great faith today to believe your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good to be with you uh, today. And uh, it's my privilege if you're new again. Great welcome to you. My wife and I watch a TV show called Monk. Monk, if you are a little bit older, uh, you might remember it. We like to watch uh, old TV shows. And one of the things that Monk does, he's sort of a former detective that's hired as a consultant for the police to solve murder cases. And one of the things that, uh, that Monk does every week is he solves a murder case. But there's one week where Monk decides to go on a holiday. And... They go to uh, some resort, a hotel, they're lying on the beach. But of course, you're assuming that something's going to happen here because it's Monk and he always seems to discover that there's a murder that's taken place and of course, it wouldn't be an episode uh, in there unless something was going on. And interestingly, in the text today, Jesus is actually going on a holiday. He's leaving the region of ministry, the region he'd be doing ministry in around the Lake of Galilee, and he's going to a seaside region, the region of Tyre and Sidon, which are two seaside cities in the ancient Near East. Jesus is going on a holiday. In fact, it says that he, in verse 21, he withdrew to that district. You might remember last week, as we've been continuing to go through the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus was in an intense discussion with these religious hypocrites, the Pharisees, and he called them out. He said, you honour me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And crowds constantly coming to him, Jesus is pouring himself out in ministry, giving us a foretaste of how he would pour himself out fully for sinners on the cross as we get to the end of the book of Matthew. And yet here... Jesus is taking a break. But like Monk, you kind of assume, because it's in the text, that something's going to happen. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, it says he wanted to take a break, he wanted to remain hidden, but he couldn't. It's this idea that wherever Jesus is, people are drawn to him. Wherever Jesus is, people feel a sense that they need him for various reasons. And one of the stark things that I want to point out to you that Jesus says to this Canaanite woman, and really will frame our discussion of this text for today, is he says that she has great faith. And so I want to point out to you that there are seven, seven marks of great faith in the text, and I'm going to go through each one with you now. So number one, great faith is born when we are interrupted by Jesus in the middle of our crisis. 
Great faith is born when we are interrupted by Jesus in the middle of our crisis. Notice that this Canaanite woman that Jesus met or that met with Jesus was in a real crisis. You'll see in the text that her daughter was severely oppressed by a demon. She's in deep spiritual trouble. This might have cost her a lot of money as she'd been going to the various priests of the Canaanite religion, made many offerings to their goddess Asati to try and be healed, and it hadn't worked. It seems like as soon as she heard that Jesus was there, she was drawn to him. She was desperate because she was in a crisis. Her life was really messy and she was out there advocating for her daughter. And she was even willing, and this is really interesting, to abandon the gods of her country. Remember, this is outside of Israel. The Jews don't live in this region for the most part. The region of Tyre and Sidon is where the pagans live. They worship other gods. She's willing to abandon them because they haven't actually worked out for her and to turn to Jesus. She is desperate. She is in a crisis and she's turning to Jesus. This is fascinating because many of us have, could testify to having grown in our faith when we went through a crisis. Many of us probably came to faith in Jesus when we went through a crisis. You might be going through a crisis right now and wondering what's going on. Well, let me tell you that this is an opportunity for you, like this Canaanite woman, to have great faith. And we'll see how shortly. I want you to notice her initial conversation with Jesus in verse 22. What does she say? Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Notice the first words, have mercy on me. This is an act of humility. The idea of mercy is an interesting one biblically and uh, for those of you that know your dictionary, the idea of mercy is undeserved kindness. In fact, when you do deserve something wrong to happen to you, it's having received, not receiving that penalty. And that is what she's asking for. She's saying, I know I've worshipped other gods, but you seem to have true power. You seem to be the real deal. So have mercy on me because I've failed. I've failed my daughter. I haven't been able to find a solution for her. I've obviously failed spiritually because she's got demons. I've failed the gods of my country. And the culture and religion was entrenched with one another. So she's saying, I don't even trust my culture anymore. Have mercy. What does she say next? Oh Lord, son of David. We'll get back to this a little bit later. But she cries out a profession of faith that is extremely rare in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels. She has more theological accuracy than the Jews who are awaiting a Messiah. 
She's not even part of that nation. And yet she's really clear on who Jesus is. O Lord, son of David. This woman is very genuine. She's desperate. She's in a crisis. And she is bearing the fruit of great faith. This is interesting because the idea of have mercy is acting, in enti- is acting with humility. But many people come to Jesus and they don't ask him for mercy. In fact, many of Jesus' own people come up to him with a sense of entitlement. You must heal me because they believe that he is the Messiah and so he owes them. And so the question for us today is, how do you come to Jesus? If you're a Christian person, maybe you're kind of exploring faith, a spiritual person, how are you coming and approaching the God of the Bible, the God who declares himself to have authority over heaven and earth? How are you approaching him? Do you deserve his help with your crisis? Or are you saying, have mercy? Because you realize you probably don't deserve his help because you've made a mess of it. This is the person that Jesus says has great faith. Now, interestingly, we see in the text that the woman comes to Jesus. But really, Jesus had come to her. He'd left his region of Galilee, his hometown of Capernaum and Nazareth, where he grew up, and he'd gone to her region. Interestingly, the Bible tells us at the beginning of John's Gospel that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, Jesus, being God, took on human flesh and dwelt amongst people. And now, God is coming into a foreign nation, into this woman's situation. And so really, in many ways you could say that Jesus came to her. Now, I wonder what sort of crisis you're in at the moment if you're experiencing one of sorts, whether you will allow yourself to actually turn to Jesus in the midst of it and be interrupted by him. Because I'm sure that this woman was seeking for a solution for her daughter in any and every place, and she hadn't found it yet, but when she heard about Jesus, she went after him. And she was persistent. That's the first mark of great faith that is born when we are interrupted by Jesus in the middle of our crisis. The second mark of great faith is this. Great faith is grown when we seek after Jesus even when he seems silent. Even when he seems silent. Notice this in verse 23. What does it say? But he did not answer to her a word. Jesus didn't say anything. Now, this is really unusual. You've been sort of tracking with us through the Gospel of Matthew. When people come to Jesus, he generally responds well, particularly with this sort of profession of faith, right? Oh Lord, have mercy on me. She's coming in humility. Oh Lord, she recognizes his authority. Son of David, she recognizes that he is the Messiah. She states her problem really clearly. 
but he doesn't say anything. Does that strike you as very unusual? Notice that the disciples misinterpret what's going on. We see this in the second part of verse 23. Disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Clearly, when she didn't get the response that she wanted from Jesus, she kept going. In fact, she started harassing his disciples, saying, won't you get Jesus to talk to me? And they were getting frustrated and they assumed that because Jesus was silent, he should have dismissed her. But notice that he didn't. Jesus had not dismissed her. Jesus had not sent her away, but yes, he was silent. In fact, I would say to you that he is waiting. He's waiting to see what's at the bottom of this profession of faith. He's waiting to see if as we've just heard earlier today and last week, if the words on her lips match the intentions of her heart. Because plenty of people say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, and yet many don't know him. And I would say to you that the same thing is going on in your life and regularly happens, is that God seems silent because he is getting to the bottom of what's in your heart. This means your prayers may not have been answered. Or at least not in the way you'd hoped. Even though you've prayed for a long time. You might have prayed earnestly. You might pray sporadically for the same thing. And yet it seems that God is silent. Why? He is patiently allowing your heart to match up to your words. Because anything else is hypocrisy, according to Jesus. He's patiently waiting for your heart to match up to your words. And so the calling here, and of course there's more to it, but the calling here, and Jesus teaches us actually quite regularly when it comes to prayer, don't give up. Don't stop praying. But realize that if he hasn't answered you yet, if he seems silent, He's getting the intentions of your heart right before him. If you say, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, he wants you to mean it. And he will act in what is just right and perfect for you. And maybe what you need now, this is hard to hear, what you need now is silence. Because maybe your heart's not in the right place. And that means we need to have patience because we have a God who is patient with us. There's a wonderful example of this. Uh, it's called the parable of the unrighteous judge in Luke chapter 18. And there's this widow that keeps coming to this judge pleading for justice over and over again. And it, the text says, it's not because, of he, because he's a good and just judge, that he gives the woman what she wants. He says it's because of her importunity. Her importunity. I love that word, importunity. That means persistence to the point of annoyance. Children are good at doing that, right? They're just asking for the same thing over and 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 over again. And over again. That's right. But the point of Jesus' parable, 
don't give up. Because God is not an unrighteous judge. How much more? How much more will the righteous judge, the just judge of all the earth, give justice to his people? Don't give up. God is working in the silence. There's lots of reasons, of course, God doesn't answer prayer. You know, you're, if you're treating your wife badly, he won't answer your prayers. He says if you ask him with wrong motivations, he won't answer your prayers. He says if your words of your mouth don't match up with your heart, he won't answer your prayers. In fact, he won't even hear you, Isaiah says. So don't get the idea in your head that whenever you pray, God hears you, because that's not always true. It's not actually technically biblical to give an always on that situation. There are instances where God does not listen to your prayers, but the act of you praying should be getting your heart right with God. In fact, maybe that's what you should be seeking first before you want your situation sorted out. That's the second point. Point three, great faith is demonstrated when we break through barriers to get to Jesus. See this in verse 24. What does Jesus say? So finally, he responds to her. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Oh, that's a big barrier. That's a big barrier there. In fact, the text is really clear that Jesus left his region and went to her region. So there's a few barriers I want to mention for you. There's a racial barrier. She's a Canaanite, a Syrophoenician, Mark's Gospel tells us. She's not a Jew. She's not one of God's chosen people, it seems. It's a racial barrier. There's a geographical barrier. Different regions. He's a foreigner to her and she's a foreigner to him. There's obviously a religious barrier. Well, she was a Canaanite pagan. She worshipped Astarte. But it seems like she was a backslidden goddess worshipper. Astarte is the goddess of Venus. And the idea in the ancient Near East with pagan religion is that you made sacrifices in order to get what you want from those particular gods. And if you weren't getting what you want, in this woman's case, her daughter healed from severe demonic oppression, then you make bigger and bigger sacrifices. Because you've offended that God in some way. And so you need to appease it through making a great sacrifice. And yet, this was a big barrier because she was not a worshipper of Yahweh. So we see there's already these three barriers, racial, geographical, religious. There's also a gender barrier, interestingly. And we see this when Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Because you're a man and a Jew would talk to me, a woman. See, Jewish men did not really associate with single women, but particularly those of another nation. There's all these barriers, one after another. And yet, what does this woman do? She steps over all of them. How, I want to ask you, how would she get through all these barriers? I mean, these barriers have withheld the surrounding nations from God for generations. How would she get over these kinds of barriers? 
because she went straight to Jesus. She didn't try to argue her way in. She, she just went after him. And she wouldn't let him go. And she kept coming again and again and again after Jesus. And so let me ask you, what are your barriers for Jesus, for coming to Jesus? You know, maybe you weren't, didn't grow up in a Christian country. Maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian family. You have a familial barrier. Maybe your particular ethnic group that you're a part of doesn't really have a strong Christian heritage. What are your barriers? Maybe life's been hard for you. Maybe you've had a lot of difficulty in your life and it's been one thing after another. It's been one crisis after another. And you've got so many barriers to coming to Jesus. Maybe you've been a worshipper of other gods. You know, you might not have made sacrifices to Astarte, but you may have made sacrifices to the gods of career or relationships or money or material possession. There's so many barriers that we could have towards coming to God. Won't you notice that Jesus doesn't ask her to leave? Even though the disciples assumed that that's what she, he was going to do. Jesus doesn't ask her to leave. And also want to remind you that Jesus is breaking every one of these barriers down by speaking to her. He's breaking them down himself. And I've got to tell you, if the Son of God is willing to break down these barriers, then something like mind-blowing is happening here. Jesus is breaking down the racial barrier. Jesus is breaking down the geographical barrier. Jesus is breaking down the gender barrier. Jesus is breaking down the religious barrier. And saying, yes, you can talk to the Son of God. If you'll come. Yes, he'll hear you if you'll come with a genuine heart. Yes, he will. We see a track record, in fact, of the Bible of people breaking through barriers to get to Jesus. One of the ones I love the most is in uh, Mark chapter 2 and referred to in Matthew 9 as well, is when four men literally dug through an earthen roof to lower someone into a house who was a paralytic to be healed. They, like, got tools out, it assumes. They weren't lifting tiles here. They were digging through an earthen, ancient Near Eastern, first century roof to lower someone down on ropes who's on a stretcher to be healed. And you know what happened to that person? They were healed. You know, there was a woman who was bleeding in Matthew chapter 9. And she'd been bleeding for a long time, 12 years. She'd been to many doctors. They couldn't heal her. And she thought in her mind, if I just reach out and touch him, if I just reach out and touch his garment, I'll be healed. And you know what happened? She was healed. There was a man in the Gadarene region on the other side of Lake Galilee with an army of demons inside of him. His nickname was Legion. And this man was living amongst the tombs. No one could control him. 
And yet what happened? Jesus healed him. These are outsiders. These are unclean people. These are people who are in really serious and unstable lives. They're in the middle of a crisis of various forms. Some of these people have given up until they heard of Jesus. And then they're willing to break through the barrier to get to him, even if it's a physical one. There was a leper, and I love this one, in Matthew chapter 8. The lepers had to go around and shout out, unclean, unclean, so the people wouldn't come near them. They had to live outside the city. They weren't allowed to live amongst other people, and lepers would form colonies, leper colony. That's where they come from, where they could be unclean and still have some sort of community. But they weren't allowed to be part of temple worship. They weren't allowed to be part of ordinary community. They weren't even allowed to live amongst their family, though their family probably had to financially support them. So they were a burden on society. And yet one of them reached out and said, Jesus, will you heal me? If you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I will be clean. And Jesus touches him. And rather than Jesus becoming unclean, his holiness and his power rubs off onto this man and he is made clean and healed. What does this tell us? This tells us not just that people are willing to break barriers to get to Jesus, but Jesus is willing to break barriers to get to you. The greatest barrier that Jesus was willing to go through to get to you was death. The culmination of the book of Matthew is that Jesus went to a cross to pay the penalty for your sin so that he could have mercy upon you. So that everything that you've done, your messy life that has kept you from Jesus, will be paid for and dealt with. So that he could touch you and say, you're made clean. That you could receive him by faith and have your heart healed. The Bible doesn't promise instantaneous healing for everyone. But it does promise with the concrete hope of the resurrection, that everyone who believes in him will be saved and everyone will have a hope of full and eternal physical life free from sin, free from the difficulty and the evil of this world if we believe in him. And that is a promise that this woman with a very... A very, well, I would say, infant faith is crying out and asking that Jesus would do in her life. And he's letting it boil to the surface. That was number three. Number four is this great faith is expressed through deep and simple prayers. We see this in verse 25. She knelt down, she knelt down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. You know, you're getting real with God when your prayers move from kind of being elaborate. Even hers was pretty good, right? Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. It doesn't seem like she'd rehearsed it. Maybe she had. But we're getting to the bottom of the barrel now. And she's saying, Lord, help me. That's all she's got. It's interesting that in, Matthew, uh, in Romans chapter 8, the Bible talks about groanings too deep for words. 
Sometimes you just got nothing in the tank to pray, you just got to groan. Question is, who are you groaning to? You know, groan to yourself, you groan to the universe because nothing out there. But if you groan to Jesus, if you're, if you're really getting to the end of yourself, you're desperate and you're real with Him, and you're willing to say, Lord, help me. Oh, gee, that's a sign of great faith. And this points out something that's really important for each of us to know. It's that lots of religious knowledge doesn't produce great faith. The Jews knew like abundantly more than she did about Jesus or about the Messiah, and yet they didn't know Jesus. And if she has just the tiniest little bit of information... And she's clinging to it with everything she's got. And she says, Lord, help me. Notice, Lord, second time. She calls him Lord. And she says, help me. And so for you, it's time to let go of the pride. He doesn't need a fancy prayer. He knows what you're going to ask for even before you ask it. So why would you get fancy? Lord, help me is far more likely to be heard than anything else. If it's real, if it's genuine. That's the mark of true prayer, if it's from the heart, not just on the lips, so that you sound good. She had decided that though she hadn't seen his power for herself, that he was able to help her. That's faith. When you notice her posture that she knelt. What does kneeling imply? Let me do it. What does kneeling imply? Submission. Yep, let's go. Humble. What else? Lowering. Good news. It's a sign of desperation. You people beg on their knees. Why do they beg on their knees? It's a sign of submission. It's a sign, you're greater than I am. I will lower myself before you. You know, the old style of churches used to have kneelers in them. Why? Because our posture before the Lord should have reflected our heart. Will you kneel before Jesus? Because that's what great faith is made of. Number five, great faith is expressed by those who wrestle with God for his blessing. See this in verse 26, Jesus replies to her request for help. He answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's pretty harsh, don't you reckon? Read that one and go, well, didn't expect Jesus to say that, but he does. Now, what's he saying here? He's actually providing a metaphor for us and he's really referring to what he said earlier in verse 24, that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus' priority first is to go to his own people, the Jewish nation, and then to the Gentiles. But then why is he in Tyre and Sidon? Other than that he's on a holiday. Why is he there? What's going on here? Jesus is saying something, but he's also revealing something by what he's doing. And we must look at both.
to understand. Notice that there's another person that Jesus says that has great faith, and he's also an outsider, a centurion, earlier in Matthew's Gospel. Why does Jesus say that the outsiders, who aren't Jewish people, have great faith, but he doesn't make this statement about any of the religious insiders? What is going on here? Well, you notice something else. That even though Jesus says something like this... now. It's probably not in their context to be taken offensively. We, you know, see, put, you know, the, the, the people who are receiving the bread at the table, the children are probably Israel and the other nations are probably the dogs under the table. But he's, Jesus is painting a very ordinary family situation where these dogs are part of the family, you know, if you've got a dog that's under the table, it's still part of the family, right? And you're feeding it lamb chops or something under the table. If you do that, probably a bad idea, to be honest. But is Jesus presenting a very ordinary, familial situation. And he's saying, well, the food is for those whom it's given to first. But she doesn't let it go. She won't let him go until she gets the blessing. Notice... That she responds, yes, Lord, third time. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. You see, she realizes something here that's very important. That Jesus is the master of the table. He's the one in charge here, distributor of the bread. Jesus, of course, refers to bread in other gospels as the bread of eternal life. And that he is this bread, by believing in him you will receive eternal life. This is the third time she's called Jesus Lord. So we've got two things. She, really, she realizes that he's master of the table. She's called him Lord three times. And that when something happens three times, you know in the Bible it's significant. We know that uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy <coughs> points to the uttermost of holiness. And so again, if she is willing to proclaim and call upon Jesus three times, this is showing that she's the real deal. He's got to the bottom of the barrel. We're seeing whether she has true faith or not. And so she goes right to him. In her desperation, in the middle of her crisis, coming over barrier after barrier, not realizing that Jesus had crossed those barriers first to come to her, and she's not willing to let him go. Spurgeon says that the Lord of the universe bowed to the will of this Canaanite woman. Powerful phrase. This reminds me of a desperate father in Mark chapter 9 who came to Jesus because no one else could heal his demon-possessed boy, interestingly, and said, Jesus, can you help me? And Jesus said, of course I can. Anything is possible to the one who believes. So in her desperation, she's finally there. She finally recognizes that he's the master of the table, that he's truly Lord, and she is willing to have it out with him so that she will get his blessing. This, of course, reminds us of the wrestle that Jacob had with God. Yeah, Jacob had 
you know, made a few mistakes in his life. He'd ripped people off and then he'd been ripped off. And his trouble was catching up with him. His brother was bringing an army of 400 men to come and destroy him, it looked. And then after he crossed over a river, he was met by someone in the night and he wrestled till the break of day and he wouldn't let him go until he got the blessing. And so let me say to you then, don't let go. Don't let go. Jesus is the only one worth clinging to. He's the only one worth wrestling with. He's the only one that if you wrestle with him, you won't get burnt. You'll get a blessing. Choose to persist because that is what we're being called to in this text. Stick with him. Don't try other gods. Don't turn away and follow your sinful passions. Cling to Jesus and you'll get the reward. And we see this in point six. Great faith is recognized by Jesus and he responded with his abundant grace. So notice in verse 28 that Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Well, of course she didn't deserve it. I think we've covered that already. She's the wrong race, the wrong religion, the wrong region. She'd caused her own problems, probably. Or at least some of them. And yet, Jesus recognizes her great faith upon her declaration that he is the master of the table, upon her declaration that he is Lord three times. And I want you to notice something, and this is really interesting, is that Jesus says that this woman has great faith. A little bit earlier when Peter was trying to walk on water and he fell in, Jesus says, you have little faith to Peter. So let's get this right. Peter spent two years thereabouts with Jesus. He's seen pretty much all the miracles. He's heard him teach. He's been there for the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he's been following with Jesus a lot, a lot of the time. He's at, and Peter's out in the water, and still he just can't trust Jesus, even though he's got all the information he needs. Commentators talk about it as light. He's like walking in daylight, yet he's not willing to put his foot out. And yet this woman has a tiny little bit of light by comparison. She knows very little about Jesus, but she's sure that he's the one. She's got a candlestick, whereas Peter's got a son. And yet she has great faith. This begs the question, what have you done with the light that you have? If you are privileged to have grown up in a Christian family, if you are privileged to have known the Lord and have read the Bible and be part of community and fellowship, what have you done with it? Are you putting it into practice? Are you living for Jesus? Are you living as a labourer? Your life dedicated to His service, no matter what you do. Because I can tell you that this Canaanite woman was, and she only had a tiny little bit. She was living for Jesus. You see, faith doesn't quite need as much evidence as we think it does. 
She was grasping at a mustard seed and that was enough for her. And what do we see? Well, Jesus healed her daughter instantly. There was no delay. It shows that he always had the power to heal her. And so Jesus is doing something in the text. He's teaching us something. He's teaching us that he was waiting until true faith was revealed. But Jesus did the work. You see, and we see this beautiful pairing of human responsibility and God's sovereignty together. Jesus came to her region, but she came to Jesus. Jesus listened, but she cried out for mercy. Jesus waited patiently, but she persisted with importunity. Jesus tested her, but she called on his grace. He is Lord, but she calls him Lord. And so, just to prove the point here, the Bible says later in Acts and in Romans 10 and earlier in the Old Testament that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Jesus knows if you've got great faith and he will respond and he will stick with you to the end, even if he seems silent at the time. Lastly, point seven. Great faith comes not by seeing miracles, but by drawing near to Jesus. Let me repeat that. Great faith comes not by seeing miracles, but by drawing near to Jesus. How often have you asked, I just need a miracle, I just need a sign. Lord, won't you just show me something that you're in it? Let's have a look at the text from verses 29 to 31. Jesus finishes his holiday. Back to work, back to the business of healing people. And then all the people find out Jesus is in town. They all come to him. And what does it say they did? The people brought the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute, and many others, and put them at his feet, and he healed them. They came, they brought their sick to him and those who had various illnesses and infirmities, and Jesus healed them. All of them. Every single one. Every single one, Jesus healed. These were the lost sheep of Israel Jesus spoke to earlier. I want you to notice something, though. This is where we need to go to the the minutiae of the text, verse 31. The crowd wondered when they saw Jesus healing everyone. The crowd wondered, what's going on? They marveled, they're amazed what's going on. And we see really what came out of their heart as they looked a bit closer because it says when they saw everyone, not just them being healed, but them expressing their healing in sort of um, healthy human function, they glorified the God of Israel. Now, ordinarily, sounds great, except they've totally missed the point. Because who are they glorifying? God up there. Where is God? Right in front of them. They've totally missed him. They have totally missed him. Why on earth then is this account of Jesus healing all the people in the Jewish nation of Israel and the account of him healing this Canaanite woman's daughter in Tyre and Sidon side by side? Why are they side by side? Well, let me give you a reason. Because 
the Canaanite woman, before she saw Jesus do any miracles, put her faith in him. That's true faith. She demonstrated the humility that bore the fruit of great faith. And Matthew is showing to all his readers that religious, racial, geographical, familial, gender, whatever it is, any privilege you have when it comes to knowing Jesus, knowledge is not enough. Don't have faith. Jesus is recognizing that some of those things can become a self-imposed barrier to knowing him. But the Canaanite woman overcame each of these because she was focused on Jesus himself. And so let me encourage you. Stop messing around with religion, with knowledge, with trying to know more apart from knowing him. Because he is the only one that can meet you in your time of need, no matter what it is, no matter what your crisis is. He alone can do it. I've got in my notes here, don't be a Google Christian. Google is symptomatic of our easy, everywhere, quick fix, instant gratification era. That is, when God is silent, we sort it out ourselves. We've got to silent, we Google it to get the answers. Instead of waiting patiently for him to get the bottom of, to the bottom of the barrel of our hearts. We've got to reject that philosophy. We need to become patient and wise and let him deal with our hearts. Because I reckon there's a whole lot of surface level Google Christians out there who really don't know Jesus very much at all, even though they say they do. Remember the story of the ten lepers that Jesus healed and only one came back to thank him? You probably don't need that miracle as much as you think you do. But what you do need to do is to come to Jesus and let him bring it to the surface. And he will deal with you perfectly because he is patient and wise and loves you dearly. I'm going to invite the band to come up and I pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your patience, your wisdom to us, your great love. We pray that now as we worship you, that these words will be made true, both on our lips and in our heart. Amen.